I am the local pharmacist, if you will, that has worked with Dr. Goldhaber for many years. And what you've heard here really is landmark information that is going to change the practice of medicine and peripheral vascular disease. So the heavy lifting, if you will, has been done. And now our role as practitioners and my role as a pharmacist is how do we organize this and how do we deliver and how do we make things happen uh, in the world of, of medicine. Uh, I have some disclosures. So um, I very simply want to try to cover the goals of therapy. And then I want to talk about the barriers. You know, what are the obstacles for us in terms of getting this uh, into play and into practice? And what are the potential solutions going forward. And I recognize, you know, I'm the probably the the obstacle, you know, to your mattress, to your last meal, warm milk and cookies. So here's my outline. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about polypharmacy. And when we talk about polypharmacy, we're typically talking about managing a disease with four or more medications. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the barriers that I think exist um, and I've outlined them here, we'll go through them, and then some potential solutions uh, that I think need to happen. Um, and hopefully as patients and practitioners, practitioners in the audience, you'll help us with that. So the goals of therapy, uh, we haven't mentioned it at all tonight, but there are national guidelines now that exist for the management of symptomatic peripheral vascular disease. Um, uh, one of the architects was uh, Dr. Gerhard Herman, who works in our Division of Vascular Medicine. And if you look down the bottom, the foundation of uh, therapy and the goals of therapy really are to improve functional capacity. Can we now get patients up uh, and around and the ability to walk? I heard the term walking six blocks this morning and getting patients to be able to function. And then more importantly, from a clinician standpoint, can we reduce, uh, or re reduce cardiovascular risk? So you heard about limb ischemia, uh, amputations, stroke, myocardial infarction, cardiovascular risk. Now recognize, you heard Dr. Campia talk that this is not a single disease, but typically reflective of multiple diseases and so the national guidelines not only talk about anticoagulant therapy uh, on the right, but they talk about antiplatelet therapy, management of diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia, and of course, trying to re reduce the scourge of cigarette smoking. Recognize that just about every one of these diseases requires more than one drug in terms of successful management. And you don't have to look any further um, in terms of guidelines. This was work. Um, I have to recognize Dr. Hirsch, who was here many, many years ago and I had the opportunity to work with. This is his Medicare database, um, again, over 10 years ago. But if you look at the left, you'll see that many of these patients have those underlying comorbidities. Um, and we are typically trying to take care of them with multiple strategies. Um, I have three children in college, and so the important element that I'll tell you to recognize is, is 
As you heard earlier, there is an enormous amount of resources that goes out in terms of hospital care and medical expenses, okay? Those are our goals of therapy, medical management. What are our barriers? Well, even though there are national guidelines out there, I'd urge you to recognize, this is a study that looked at patients with peripheral arterial disease, and you'll see that in many instances, the standard therapies are frequently omitted in about 30% to 40% of patients. So in terms of guidelines, and if you actually look at the therapies as they're initiated, um, using successful therapies, you'll find that the rates of um, adverse cardiac events, myocardial infarction, stroke, etc., they all go down. So what's the important message here? The guidelines tell us to use drug therapies, and if we use them, we'll be successful. All right? And this has been duplicated. This is work out of the Netherlands. Again, I don't think uh, this is unique to the United States in terms of under-prescribing, if you will, of recommended therapies, but in the graphic to the right, you'll see as you stack successful therapies, as you manage the underlying diseases, you improve survival. A simple, I think, strategy. What are some of the barriers? Well, this is data from the Center for Disease Control. If you've come to our meetings in the past, you may have seen this slide from me. We are a heavily medicated population in the United States. You'll see that at least half of the citizens are on one medication. But I'd urge you to look. If you look at the population of patients that are 65 years of age and older, that about 50% of patients are on five or more medications, and about 50% of uh, patients are on at least one to four medications. What does that tell us? That uh, this is PAD, a population of elderly patients, and we are already, already heavily medicating these patients. The suggestion, of course, from the CDC is what? That we overprescribe correct? And if you superimpose things like the opioid epidemic in the United States, I think the message again is, is that there are too many drugs out there in terms of managing patients. I think in the, this disease state, you couldn't be more wrong. And I think the message of polypharmacy being bad often leads to underprescribing. This has been documented in a number of articles. I pulled this from an outpatient geriatric ward looking at patients um, that uh, had polypharmacy on board. But what was important was is that if you look at the patients that had PAD, that about 21% of them were underprescribed the agents that they need for their disease management. And again, you can look, this is not unique to many diseases, but if you look in this study of, uh, again, peripheral arterial disease, 51% of patients had a drug that they needed, omitted, um, and there were 44% of patients that were underdosed or underprescribed what they needed in terms of their management. So I think an important element going forward is to make sure that we have the right drugs on board. All right? Now, should we give rivaroxaban and aspirin to everybody? Um, I think from a dosing standpoint, we need to go 
uh, low, and I think we need to use this strategy slowly going forward. This is a sub-study, and I recognize that it is not patients with peripheral arterial disease, but patients with atrial fibrillation. The important part of this study is they looked at patients that were on lots of medications. Half of the patients were on five to nine medications, and about 13% of patients enrolled in the study were on uh, 10 or more medications. In terms of efficacy, no compromise, but in terms of safety, what you'll see is, is this tendency towards higher bleeding rates, okay? So when you start combining drugs and you stack lots and lots of drugs, and in many instances some of them may not be necessary, there are consequences with that. Is this unique? To the River Oxaban product, I know the uh, folks that sell a Pixaban are somewhere in the room, so I'll slander them equally um, in terms of what plays out. And you'll see here in the Aristotle trial, again in atrial fibrillation, that when you look at the population of patients that take five or more medications, there are higher rates of stroke and systemic embolism, so you compromise efficacy and you have higher rates of bleeding. So what's my message here? Um, there is more to learn. I recognize that the dose that was used um, in our uh, COMPASS trial was low. But again, there are things in real life that play out that we need to pay attention to. And I point to this real-world study that was published in December in JAMA that looked at patients um, that had all of the novel anticoagulants prescribed. And they were also given concomitant medications that interact with these medications, meaning they should have never received these medications that are listed in the box here, and I won't go through the details, but they alter the metabolism of the anticoagulants, and as again, you might expect, there was a higher rate of bleeding episodes in all of the combinations that we used uh, with anticoagulant therapy. So we have to be better in terms of going forward and how we use these drugs. Um, the elderly is a special concern of mine because I have parents that are in their late 80s. Um, I'll, I'll summarize, I, che I cheated on this study um, or in my figures here because in the study, if you read it, they compared dabigatran, the anticoagulant versus warfarin. I dug through all the details and separated out the elderly patients and compared those that were in the total population versus those that were elderly. And again, in our elderly patients, what you see is higher rates of uh, thrombotic events and you see higher bleeding rates and so it should come as no surprise that we are working again with a population of elderly patients and we need to identify the right ones and we need to provide adequate supervision going forward. So a new therapy okay, that we are going to prescribe that has never been prescribed before. So does that mean uh, Dr. Goldhaber writes, takes out his prescription pad and writes for these drugs and that the patients will immediately go to the pharmacy and have them filled? And the answer to that is no. And the problem starts immediately when Dr. Goldhaber prescribes that if you look, and it doesn't make any difference which disease state, anticoagulants are included in cardiovascular conditions, 
that about a third of patients within a nine-month period, if we go out nine months, that a third of patients would even have their prescription filled. All right? So there's more to it than just writing a prescription. We need to provide adequate supervision to make sure that people actually have their prescription filled. We are talking about persistence with anticoagulant therapy and persistence with antiplatelet therapy. I can tell you these are lifetime strategies and if you look at these curves that whether a patient has been on anticoagulant therapy before or is new to it, whether they've been on uh, antiplatelet therapy, if you look over the long term and it, anything longer than two months that the persistence of the adherence to the prescribed regimens fall off to about 50%. So what do we need to do for the patients that are in the audience? We need to encourage you to take these medications in order for us to be successful. And if you do take them, um, and I'll go through these slides quickly. This was a study similar to COMPASS that looked at patients that had atherosclerosis um, and they looked at how uh, the uh, drug possession ratio, in other words, did they have the drugs in their hand and did they take them? And some patients were fully adherent, meaning they took the drugs. 80% uh, or more of the time, there were some patients that were partially adherent and took them about half the time. And there were those that were considered non-adherent that took it less than half of the time. Well, if you look, those patients that actually took the drug um, as prescribed have a lower incidence of major adverse cardiovascular events. Um, if you partially took the, the drugs, you still had benefit. So my message here is what? If you take the drugs consistently, they will work and the, they will provide benefit. And, and we can go through these. These are the timelines over a five-year period. Again, uh, the graphic showing that if you um, fully adhere to your regimens, the incidence of cardiovascular events are greatly reduced. You'll see that patients that fully adhere have fewer hospitalizations. You'll see that they have fewer encounters with the healthcare system in the graphic to the left, uh, things like emergency room visits. Um, and then, again, because I have kids in college, when you look at the dollars associated with therapy, you avoid a whole bunch of complications that cost money. And in the end, even though we are spending a small amount of money on drugs, we'll avoid the major events that require hospitalization and require a great deal of, of clinical support. So, is this easy? Um, my friends know it is not. There is a tremendous amount of work that goes on here, not only amongst the investigators, but now there is a lot of work on behalf of the clinicians and for the patients in the audience. I will tell you, this is not easy to take and stick with your medications on a day-to-day -day basis over the long term. Are there potential solutions? Well, a lot of it starts with education because we find that in our transition of patients through the hospital, through our clinics, they typically are not educated. They're are lots of great educational materials. Uh, these are from 
uh, the American Heart Association on peripheral arterial disease, and I think these are the things we need to work and direct patients to so that they are engaged and familiar with what we're doing. Um, there have been a number of projects associated with anticoagulant therapy, again, supporting the selection of, of drugs, uh, looking at adherence, providing education and support and what to do in the event they miss doses, and then finally support and engagement to make sure that they are vigilant for events, uh, events of thrombosis and events of bleeding. And when you engage patients and you follow them and you provide surveillance, as you might expect, you'll see that most of the patients are truly far more adherent with their drug therapies and typically that will lead to better outcomes. So again, this is like having a policeman on the side of the road with a radar gun, right? If someone follows you day to day, people do what they're supposed to do and things do well. Is there a role for things getting better in terms of medicine? Um, I added this slide because um, we are now putting um, health coaches in many of our clinics to help follow patients and provide support when they are at home. Uh, there is a big movement towards telemedicine uh, and telepharmacy and somehow collecting information about um, parameters, laboratory parameters, vital signs, medication adherence, and providing the information back to patients so they have feedback in real time, a report card, if you will, in terms of how well they've performed uh, with their disease management. We are trying to extend our Meds to Beds program and our Meds to Clinic program, so we are actively pursuing getting medications to the bedside. Now we are focusing on getting medications to patients' hands in the clinic. All right. And the last thing I'll say is if you look at all of the costs associated with peripheral vascular disease, what you'll find is, is the costs of drugs are relatively small. Most of the drugs, whether it's hyperlipidemia, hypertension, diabetes, we have a whole portfolio of generic drugs and the costs are relatively small. That is not the biggest component of, of the cost of care. It is the hospital encounters, it is the procedures, it is the limb amputations. And so if we can keep you on your drug therapies, which are relatively inexpensive, we will be successful in preventing the large expenses that are associated associated uh, with interventions. I'll put a, uh, a plug in here because I wish we followed the Canadian system. I wish that for patients over the age of 65, we had a Medicare program that provided the medications for patients free of charge. Why do I say that? Because we have shown that here. This is a study that looked at patients with myocardial infarction, and in one group of patients, they received full coverage meaning all of the drugs were provided free, and those patients were compared to those with usual coverage, meaning they had out-of-pocket expenses. And as you might expect, those that had usual care and had to pay out-of-pocket had a much higher event rate than those that had their coverage 
provided, okay? And if you look, the adherence associated with medications was much better in those that had their coverage as well. So if you want to make a phone call to Elizabeth Warren, if you want to make a phone call to Ed Markey and let them know we need the government to help us out, provide some support for our elderly population, um, uh, I think that would that would help. Hey, we're in the midst of changing health care with a, a new president. Um, we've made some advances with universal health care. Why not now? Um, I don't dismiss the role of our anticoagulation clinic, so I give them credit because at the height of our, our, our operations, we had close to 10,000 patients, uh, patients receiving the drug Coumadin or Warfarin. I think there's a role for those patients with PAD that we have never followed before four to enroll them in our anticoagulation clinic, provide them with assistance to make sure that they are on their doses, that they are being followed for complications, and that they adhere to the regimens that have been prescribed. So I will finish there. Um, I think there's a whole bunch of things here that are represented now by the benefit of the COMPASS trial, by the wonderful work that has been done by our cardiovascular colleagues, and I think... Um, there's an opportunity here for education, uh, to provide education to, to patients, to make sure that we have access and the medications are in their hands, that we have adequate resources to support them in terms of follow-up. I've used the term disease management programs and self-care. Uh, we are leaning towards the use of health coaches and support staff. I think we need to engage not only the people that are here in the hospital, not only the patients, but their family members as well. And I think we need to have an adequate surveillance program so that we do the right thing and we get the right results. Um, with that, I'll stop and uh, turn it over to Greg.